betting on yourself is only a risk if you don't believe in your abilities. Mm -hmm. And that whole time I had a lot of people saying, uh, I mean, I haven't even told you the, the, I guess part of the punchline of that is I had a whole job offer to go coach gymnastics in Texas at an elite gym for the guy who was the Olympic team head coach for three different Olympic uh, quads. So that was kind of the path that I was supposed to take was go coach gymnastics, make $60,000 a year, which was guaranteed, which is more than my parents have ever made combined and be on the path to be the next Olympic coach for USA gymnastics. And I turned that down during my internship before I knew that the internship with ET would turn into anything. Um, and everybody said, man, you're crazy for doing that. You know, why are you going out on a limb and taking this gamble? And that's what it taught me was that it's only a gamble if I don't think that I can make something of it. So just this whole concept of betting on yourself and um, putting your own destiny in your hands. Hey, this is a quick shout out from one of our awesome sponsors. Check this out. Thank you to Tranquil Turtle Massage. They are located right in the heart of downtown Coeur d'Alene. And Tracy is a master massage specialist and Hanu Ashiatsu trainer. Look, my wife and I go see her and her team every single month. And we walk away feeling great. Sore muscles are gone. We feel relaxed. You got to go check them out. Tell them I sent you for 25 bucks off your massage package. Also, while you're there, make sure you check out CDA Brows, Body, and Ink, offering Coeur best tattoo brows, plasma fiberblast, tightening, and PMU services. Tell them I sent you and you'll save 100 bucks on your tattoo brows or plasma tightening. Make sure you check out Tranquil Turtle Massage and CDA Brows, Body, and Ink at pnwmobilemassage.com. Brandon, you're an Eric Thomas certified international speaker, elite athlete, entrepreneur, coach, influencer with over 50 million views, man. So much more. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Man, you make me sound kind of good. I need you following <laughs> me around everywhere. I like that <laughs> intro. That's <laughs> awesome, man. I-, I love to go back to the beginning with my guests. Like, where did you grow up and what was travel like for you? Yeah, man. Grew up originally from Huntsville, Alabama. Um, relatively small town, you know, about 40, 45 minutes south of the Tennessee border in northern Alabama. Uh, really a melting pot of a town. You know, it's funny because I always tell people that Huntsville is a lot of the reason why I'm pretty adept at, at being able to work with a lot of different types of people because you have sort of the, the poor part of the city, you've got the hood, and then you've got the redneck part of the city, and then you've got NASA has a base out there as well. So you get a lot of, um, you know, kind of upper class engineering type people. So just people from all different walks of life in Huntsville. And uh, that's where I grew up. I was born and raised there 18 years. Um, childhood for me was, I would say it, it was a blessing, but it was also stressful. Um, it was a blessing because I had the best parents that you could possibly imagine, you know, parents that believed in me, parents that made me feel like I could do anything, grow up to be whoever and whatever I wanted. Um, a little bit of tension in childhood. My biological father uh, wasn't around from, from day one, but my stepfather was around since before I was even born. So mm. I've always been that, that kid who felt like he had three different families, sure. um, but in, in a good way, you know, a lot of yeah. love, a lot of support. Um, and then I started gymnastics at the age of 10 years old. And man, from then on out, my childhood was training <laughs> pretty much right up until I was 18 years old. Come on. That's awesome. I remember, you know, as I was like, when I was a kid, my parents put me in gymnastics at a very early age as well. I can do a round off and that's about it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I just remember like jumping into the big foam pits as a kid, you know, and yep. I think my, my, my family maybe did that for about a year, but I, I think, you know, you're a D one athlete. It's definitely not an easy title to learn to earn there. Um, but you have to be extremely disciplined to be where you're at. 
and most people I think I assume because I didn't go to college but like when you're in college you're probably out partying and stuff like that what was the draw to become a gymnast and, and how did you stay so disciplined to do what you're doing today yeah that's a good question honestly it's less discipline than people think because one there was a system to follow and two it was in alignment with who I am and who I was and so I'll break each one of those things down. When I say that there's a system to follow, when you go to a big institution like Michigan and you're part of a, a sports team, they're telling you when to wake up. They're telling you when to lift. They're telling you how heavy to lift. They're telling you what sets and reps to do when you lift. They're telling you when to eat. They're telling you how to eat. They're telling you when to train. They're telling you how to train. They're telling you when to go to bed, when to go to class. Your whole life is set up in such a way where if all you do is show up, you will make progress. Now, you might not go to the Olympics. You might not win a championship, but you're going to make a heck of a lot of progress if you just show up and follow the system. And what that taught me, and I didn't understand this until I was already out of college and, and struggling to figure it out on my own, was yeah. that that outsourced a lot of my discipline. I didn't have to be as disciplined as people might think because I wasn't the one that I was accountable to. I was accountable to this institution and to this system of my coaches holding me accountable, the nutritionist holding me accountable, uh, my teammates holding me accountable. It was a lot of pieces in there that was pushing me towards that that direction that I was trying to, to go towards. So it wasn't as much discipline as you might think. Recreating that afterwards, that's the tricky part. So that's the first part of it. The second part was it was really in alignment with who I was, meaning I was never the kid who wanted to go out and get drunk and party every single night. I was always the one that was attracted towards success. I was attracted toward the concept of working hard and accomplishing a big goal. That was always more exciting to me than going to some random party on a Friday night. And I think that really worked in my favor, both in school and then, of course, when I got out of school. When I did have to start having that system, that structure, that discipline on my own, that alignment was a huge advantage for me. Man, that's so good, dude. So I love that. And I mean, a lot of people, they want success in life, but when things get hard and they get tough, they end up quitting. Like, mm -hmm. what is it that pushes you through the hard things when you're, when you encounter them in not only life, but in business as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's alignment. And then it is being unwilling to live without whatever that reward is going to be. And so the first one, of course, alignment, I love gymnastics so much. Like it doesn't even make sense. Like it's a stupid sport. It really is. I mean, you, you put your body through absolute hell over and over and over again. I've had wrist surgery. I've, I've torn stuff, in my shoulder, uh, wrist, pec, um, all sorts of injuries. Uh, I was cut from the team four times in five years. So just the, the psychological stress of going through that every single year of wondering, am I going to make the team this year? Who do I have to beat out this year? What's it going to be? Am I, is my body going to hold up this year and not get injured again? You know, the psychological stress and the physical stress is so intense that when you encounter failure like that over and over and over again, if you don't love it, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. And I think any success in any endeavor of human performance, it's all going to be a similar level of difficulty. So you've got to do something that you enjoy intrinsically enough to help you through those times. I used to always tell people who would ask me, why are you trying out again? Because it seems like it's not working out very well for you. So why do you keep coming back over and over year after year after year? Yeah. And I said, look, I'm going to be training anyway because I love this stuff. So why not try and accomplish this goal while I'm training? I'm going to spend the same amount of time in the gym, right? Oh. And so 
it, it's just so hard that if you don't love it, you're not going to be able to compete with somebody who does love it because yeah. the adversity is going to take you down when somebody else will be able to push through it because they've got that intangible factor of they just love it too much. So um, that's the first thing. And the second thing is being unwilling to compromise on the result. And so, you know, some of the other things that I might not love as much as gymnastics, uh, business, entrepreneurship, for example, there's still some passion there. Um, I think that's a prerequisite for any endeavor, but it's not to the same level of gymnastics that, you know, that sport was my first love. So it's hard to compete with that. But for that, there's certain things I want to do. I want to retire my, I'll refer to him as dad, but retire my stepdad, right? Mm -hmm. He's had cancer twice. He still works at a manual labor intensive job at 60 something years old, and he deserves wow. to be home. And it's not going to happen unless I make it happen. So if there's adversity in the workplace, I don't really care because what I have to go through is not relevant to attaining that outcome. And it's funny, you had mentioned before we started recording, you had mentioned uh, talking to Ed Milet. And I've heard him talk about this concept a lot, which is you agree to pay the price in full before you know what the price is. You have to get to this, this point where you can't be bought, where it doesn't matter how much adversity. Like I literally look at the adversity that might happen in my business career as completely irrelevant. It's expected. It's going to happen. And no matter how high the price is, I just don't care because I've already resolved to push through it because the end result is so important to me that we have to get there. And it's a non-negotiable for me. Hmm. Come on, man. Dude, I love your mission of taking care of your stepdad, your dad there. And um, what a cool thing that you're able to do that and, and help him through that, man. Um, man, I want to shift gears a little bit. Your Instagram says that you're the, the Pippin to Eric Thomas's <laughs> Jordan, right? Like Eric yeah. Thomas is one of those guys. Like I just hear his voice and I'm like, man, just fires me up. He is probably, in my opinion, one of the greatest speakers of my generation. Absolutely amazing. How did you connect with Eric and, and what's been the biggest lesson that he's taught you? Oh, that's a big question. So, so how did I connect with him? Right. I was a athlete at the university of Michigan and I, like I mentioned, cut from the team four times in five years. So a lot of adversity. And of course I need all the motivation I can get trying out for the team over and over and over again. Yeah. So I start looking at these motivational you know, speeches on YouTube and I've always been interested in that kind of thing, motivational speaking, um, life coaching, listening to Tony Robbins and, and, and ET and uh, John Maxwell, you know, listening to a lot of these guys, even from the age of 16, 17, when I was in high school. So I'd always been into that world. And then when I became an athlete and had all this adversity, because there was a lot of other things going on during my college years too. That was when my dad was diagnosed with cancer. Mom was diagnosed with a uh, incurable autoimmune disease. Uh, a lot of just different things happening in that time of my life. So I was really trying to feed my mind with that sort of content. So I dive deep into ET for whatever reason, he's one of these guys that just resonates with me a little bit more than a lot of the others, something about his voice, the way he speaks, the passion, it just gets to me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I start following him and I come to find out, uh, he was doing a special for a Christmas coaching call and it was $250. I'm literally scrolling on Instagram one day and this was my junior year of, uh, of, of Michigan. So I'm 20 years old and I'm scrolling on Instagram and I see an ad pop up from ET and it says one-on-one -on -one coaching call, 30 minutes with, with Eric Thomas for $250. And I'm like, man, that sounds kind of nice. I mean, 250, I thought he was going to be like 10,000 an hour or something right. ridiculous <laughs> like that. And of course these days he is, but I thought, man, I, I got to take advantage of this. And the funny thing is I had just gotten my very first car. And like six months before this, 
and I had been looking at putting a subwoofer in the back because I was like, and it was a, it was a 2008 or 2010 Nissan Altima coupe. So it was this tiny little, like kind of girly car. Nobody liked it, but I was like, I don't care. I've got a car and I need a kick and sound system. Like that's all I care about is I need the, the trunk needs to be booming. Right. So I'm, I'm literally researching because I'm a, I'm a analytical guy. And so I'm researching for two, three months on what kind of speaker system I'm going to get and how much it's going to cost. And funny enough, it's going to cost right around $250 to get this 12 inch sub put in the back. And I see this ad on Instagram and I'm like, man, do I go get my speaker or do I go listen to the speaker? Right. Right. And, uh, it's funny because at that point, of course I'd never met him. He was still this person that to me was so far away because he was this A-list celebrity speaker. And I don't know if he's the same person in real life as he is on YouTube. I don't know if he's totally different kind of person. I don't know. And uh, thank God I had the, I don't know, intuition, foresight. I don't know what you would call it, discernment, judgment, um, to go ahead and book the call with ET. We get on the phone. I tell him about some of the things going on in my life. You know, dad had gotten diagnosed with cancer a couple months before that as well. Um, Talked about getting cut from the team and just sort of asked his perspective and advice on a few things. And then when he found out that I went to the University of Michigan, he says, hey, I actually live in Lansing, Michigan, about an hour and a half away from you. Why don't you come meet me for breakfast at five o'clock in the morning this Saturday? And I'm completely blown away. Like, why, why do yeah. you want to talk to me? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, of course, I say yes. And I'm freaking out. And uh, I, I wake up at three thirty, four o'clock in the morning to go make this meeting happen because I got to get up and drive out there. And I'd never woken up at four o'clock in the morning on purpose in my entire life. But we made it happen. <laughs> for uh for for that meeting and we get out there and that one breakfast by the way changes it really changes my entire life that that one meeting was responsible for a complete pivot in my spiritual journey um we can get into that in a minute if you want to but it it was just such a pivotal moment to sit down and, and talk to him even just for the hour that we spent together there now from there i started volunteering at all of his events because i said i've got to stay close to this guy so i start volunteering at different events showing up wherever i can Come to find out, he's got a free event at Michigan State University in Lansing, Michigan, uh, every Monday night. And it's literally, it's just practice for him. And it's something that he started 20 years ago, and he still does it. It's a weekly uh, thing. It's free for the public. And you can show up there every Monday night, listen to ET, give a 45-minute keynote. And uh, so every single Monday for two years, uh, because this was my junior year. So for my junior year, my senior year, and my super senior year, I would wake up around six o'clock in the morning, go to morning lift with the gymnastics team from seven to eight. I would go uh, uh, do do class from 8 a.m. to about two in the afternoon. We'd have practice from two to five or 5.30, jump in the car, drive an hour and a half over to Michigan State, listen to ET speak, get back in the car, drive back to Ann Arbor, coach personal training sessions to pay for the gas that I had spent to get to Michigan State because I was putting myself through college too. So yeah. I didn't have the money to just be spending on gas an hour and a half every Monday. So I do that every single Monday for two years straight, only missed two of those sessions in two years. And that just got him to kind of know my face. And he didn't even know my name for a while, but he knew this one dude who keeps wearing this Michigan gear on Michigan State's campus keeps showing up every freaking Monday. And he's been here for two years. Fast forward to March of 2020. This is the week before the pandemic started. And nobody really knows that it's going to be as big of a deal as it's going to be. We keep hearing about it, but we don't really know if it's a serious issue or not. And I go to the success series. That was what the event was called. I go to it that night and I had prepared a binder of 60 pages of writing samples. I didn't speak back then because I wasn't confident enough to uh, speak my message, but I was always into the whole motivational 
ideas. And so I would write a lot. I was always, I, I thought that I was a writer. It was a self uh, limiting belief, but I thought that I was more of a writer than a speaker. And so I would write, you know, motivational captions and post them on Instagram, blog posts, things like that. And so I printed 60 pages of these things. I had a cover letter, disc assessment, all sorts of things in this packet that I was going to give to him that night. So I get to the success series and he does his 45 minute keynote. And of course I'm nervous the whole time because my whole plan was to approach him, give him the binder and ask for an opportunity because at this time I knew I was about to graduate March of 2020. I was going to graduate in April or May of 2020. And so I'm nervous out of my mind thinking about what I'm going to say to this guy to try and convince him to give me an opportunity. I'm sitting there. He wraps up his presentation. I haven't heard a thing he said the entire night. And he says, hey, sorry, everybody. Um, I can't stick around and take pictures and shake hands like I normally do. I keep hearing about this coronavirus thing. I'm sure it's no big deal. I'll be back next week. A week after that happened, the world shut down and he didn't do another one of those events for two years in person. Something tells me I can't let this opportunity pass. He walks out the back door of this arena. It's probably a five, 600 person, uh, you know, miniature arena, lecture hall type of thing. And he walks out the back door of it directly to the parking lot. I leave all my stuff. I left my backpack. My girlfriend was with me, left her sitting there. My other teammate was with me, left him sitting there, left all the stuff. My laptop was open on the, on the desk, left all of it there. I ran up two flights of stairs out the other end of the building, raced out to him and beat him to his car because I knew where he parked every week. <laughs> so now I'm standing between him and his car. So he has to talk to me or he, he ain't leaving, right? And yeah. it's, it's a blessing that I did this when I was 20 because if I had been 40, I would have gotten arrested. <laughs> um, but I guess because I was, I was an ambitious kid, he, he gave me the benefit of the doubt and yeah. I handed him this packet and it's cold. It's like 30 degrees and raining because it's, it's March in Michigan and that's what it does there. And I hand him this packet and we're just standing outside together. And, um, the whole pitch that I had in my head of what I was going to say to convince him to give me an opportunity went straight out the window. And I just said, you know, I'll do anything for a shot. Here's some things I want you to look at right there on the spot. He agreed to give me an internship. Worked for him for free throughout the summer, uh, of course, completely remote because this is the height of the pandemic and uh, worked for him for free for five or six months and got the full-time job offer uh, right after that. And then three months after going full-time with him, I'm sitting one-on-one with a private, on a private jet with ET flying around the country, uh, accompanying him to all the speaking gigs. So it was a dramatic story that it, it didn't seem that dramatic when it was happening because it was just, I was living it from the first person perspective. Um, but to answer your, your question about what's the biggest thing that that taught me, it's not even something that he taught me. It's something that the whole experience taught me, which is that betting on yourself is only a risk if you don't believe in your abilities. Mm -hmm. And that whole time that I had a lot of people saying, uh, I mean, I haven't even told you the, the, I guess part of the punchline of that is I had a whole job offer to go coach gymnastics in Texas at an elite gym for the guy who was the Olympic team head coach for three different Olympic, uh, quads. So that was kind of the path that I was supposed to take was go coach gymnastics, make $60,000 a year, which was guaranteed, which is more than my parents have ever made combined and be on the path to be the next Olympic coach for USA gymnastics. And I turned that down during my internship before I knew that the internship with ET would turn into anything. Um, and everybody said, man, you're crazy for doing that. You know, why are you going out on a limb and taking this gamble? And that's what it taught me was that it's only a gamble if I don't think that I can make something of it. So just this whole concept of betting on yourself and um, putting your own destiny in your hands, I think is, is what that experience taught me. Man, 
what an unbelievable story and journey that you got in front of Eric, man. And the fact that you came across some like searching motivational videos on YouTube, very similar to my story. I, I did the same thing. I was looking for motivational videos and I came across Ed Milet back in 2018. And I was like, who is this guy? Like I was aligning everything, my value, my beliefs with him. And I started like some like sponging everything I could. I went back to his very first video he uploaded to YouTube and just watched all of them ever yep. since, you know, and, and uh, I was kind of manifesting me getting an opportunity to talk with that guy. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was one point I shot him a message on Instagram before I'd even done the, you know, max out community challenge. I said, Hey man, I saw that you have a house in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. That's where I live. And I said, Hey, when you're in town next time, I'd love to buy you a burger, which by the way is the dumbest thing you could ever say to a guy who has a lot of money. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he like responded back in like five minutes. Like, yeah, dude, let's do it. And I was like, shut up, man. I never got the opportunity to meet him in person, but I think that just led to me being able to continue my relationship with him. Mm -hmm. And uh, man, that's so cool, dude. But you talked about Eric being able to help you grow in your spiritual journey. Like you and I, we have this shared faith in Jesus. How did you come to know the Lord in, in, you know, what's that testimony for you? What was that, that point where you're like, man, God's, God's in control. I got to give it all to him at this point. Yeah. Yeah. It was, he, I think that God knew the way that he wired me was to be a skeptic. Um, I'm a very analytical person and he had to put me through a sequence of events where it would logically make more sense to me for him to exist and play a role in things than not. And that took a long time for me to get to. But the conversation with E.T. was he actually gave me a book called Trusting When It Doesn't Make Sense. And it was this story about a family whose, I think, five-year-old boy uh, ended up getting brain cancer and, and passing away from it. And the whole story was following the parents of how they were able to trust in God's plan, God's will, when it didn't make sense. And my whole thesis has, had always been, you know, because I'm a psychology major, I did economics and psychology at Michigan. And so, you know, economics is the study of how to make uh, decisions, really. And then psychology is the study of, of how humans tend to make poor decisions. And so those two kind of went hand in hand to give me this really logical framework of the world. And it made me believe that a lot of the religious and spiritual practices were simply uh, coping mechanisms for uh, human shortcomings and, and the human tragedy of life, right? Yeah. And so the story that he gave me, and I read the book, and I, I thought it was nonsense going into it. And I read the book, and I thought it was nonsense the entire way through. And um, it challenged that entire belief structure that I had built up. And then I had flown home to Huntsville to go be with my dad as he got his last radiation treatment for his throat cancer. And it was shortly after I'd finished the book. And um, I never answered the door when I was at home, when I lived at home, when I went to visit home, whenever somebody knocked on the door, I never answered the door. I've always been a huge introvert, like mm -hmm. hate talking to people, terrified of speaking in front of anybody that's a stranger, like did, was not my thing. Right. And so I never answered the door. I would let my mom answer the door. I'd let my dad answer the door, but I would, I, I'm, I'm sitting down. I'm not answering the door. If somebody's knocking. Right. Yeah. And uh, so I'm there for my dad's last radiation treatment and these people knock on the door. Well, dad's obviously not in the best of shape right now. And mom was in another room or something for whatever reason. This is the first time I've answered the door in 21 years. Right. And I go out there and uh, these guys are, are uh, witnesses and they start asking me, you know, do you believe in God? Do you, are you a faithful individual? Things like that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's nothing to see here. We're Christians. We're believers. Everything else is fine. And this guy stops and says, yeah, but do you trust him? Mm -hmm. I was like, whoa. 
That's, uh, that's what the title of the book that I just read was, was trusting. And that started the sequence of events where the word trust kept popping up in my life over and over and over and over. And I understand the reticular activating system and I understand uh, uh, confirmation bias and I understand all these different things. But it just got to a point where I was like, man, this is um, a little too much to be a coincidence. And then I started going down this path with ET. And I don't know if I could pinpoint an exact moment, but it just got to the point, man, where it didn't make sense anymore for all of this to be, um, it didn't make sense for all this to be a coincidence. It was just put in, it was, it was rammed down my throat. It was just put in front of my face over and over and over and over again of like, hey, it's not enough to believe. You've got to trust. It's not enough to just believe something somewhere is out there and it may or may not have your best interest in mind. You have to trust. And then fast forward maybe a year or so. And this was when I was getting the, uh, the surgery on my wrist. So I tore what's called your TFCC, your triangular fibrocartilage complex. And it tore so much that instead of it's a little ligament in your wrist, instead of snapping in the middle, it ripped off from the attachment point on the bone and it ripped a piece of the bone off with it. So that's why they weren't able to do a, uh, a laparoscopic laser surgery. They actually had to open me up and go in and put everything back together. Wow. And so <clears throat> I'm having this surgery and it's the day before I'm scheduled to go in. And Michigan was uh, and class act on their part because I wasn't even, uh, you know, part of the team. I'd gotten cut that year after the injury and they still paid for my mom to fly out there and, and be with me for the surgery. So um, really cool thing that they did for us there. But they flew my mom out and it's the day before I'm scheduled to go in for the surgery. And my mom's in a wheelchair and she can walk around a little bit, but for more than, you know, five, 10 minutes, she's got to get in the chair and, and roll around. And uh, at the Detroit airport where she flew in, there is to get to the ride chair because she had to, she was going to fly in to the Detroit airport. She was going to get an Uber to me in Ann Arbor, which is 40 minutes away. And then she was going to stay with me for those two days, you know, the day before the surgery, the day of the surgery, and then head home, you know, two or three days later. And she had gotten to the Detroit airport, gotten her wheelchair, and she was rolling from uh, the, the baggage claim area to the pickup area where the Uber drivers pick you up. And there's four lanes of traffic. If anybody's ever been to the Detroit airport, there's four lanes of traffic in between there, right? You got to roll kind of across the street um, to get to where the Uber picks you up. And she hit some kind of a crack in the road or a rock or something, and it tipped her wheelchair over and she fell in the, in the middle of the street. And so she calls me and I'm sitting there at home and she calls me and you can hear that she's trying to hold back tears. You can hear that she's really upset. And I'm like, mom, what's, what's wrong? What's going on? You know, you're supposed to be here any minute now. What's happening? And she tells me the whole story of how she fell and she was in the middle of the street and cars were going by her and, and going around her while she's laying there in the street. She said it took two, three, four minutes before somebody came over there and actually helped her, helped her back up. And for whatever reason that I've had a lot of different, you know, you could call it trauma or tragedy or whatever you want in my life. But that one thing, it just got to me in a way that nothing else ever had before. Cause my mom is my person. Right. Mm. And to just hear the helplessness and the, the, she was ashamed of herself that she was laying in the middle of the street, not able to get up. Like you could hear the shame and the helplessness in her voice. And it just got to me in a way that nothing else could. And so, you know, we finished the conversation, make sure that she gets an Uber. Okay. She's on her way. She's not injured, everything else. But there was a 40 minute gap between her getting in the car and her getting to my place. And I just, broke and fell apart and was crying in the floor of my apartment, you know, cause my gymnastics career is about to end. And I know that. And now my mom's helpless and got financial difficulty back home. Dad still has cancer relationship troubles. Like everything's just falling apart. Like my life's a mess. And, um, 
we go through the surgery and everything works out, you know, well, and my mom stays for another couple of days and she hands me <clears throat> a gift at the end of that. She says, don't open it till I leave. All right, cool. Gets on the plane, goes back home. Everything, everything's smooth there. That night I open up the gift and it's a Bible and I open up the inside page. And remember my mom is like, like, that's the one thing that I, I still to this day don't know. Like, I think I can handle the world. I think if you get an army of 10,000 men to come attack me, I can figure it out and I'll handle it. When my mom goes, it's going to be like the thing that's going to knock me down for a minute, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so she wrote a message on the, the, the front cover of the Bible. And uh, she started off with, I'm not always going to be here. <laughs> I'm just like, come on. Like, why you got to start it like that? It's yeah. like, you know how to get to me. And uh, she said, the, the one thing that I want to leave you are the words that's in this book. And uh, same, same situation. It just broke me, man. And mm. I remember that night, this was in 2019, October of 2019. And I've been making so many mistakes, man. And, and, and a lot of the stuff that was going wrong with my life was circumstance, you know, the health, the crises and that kind of stuff. But I was, I was making a lot of mistakes in my relationship and I wasn't uh, being a good man. And there was a lot of things you know, school, I wasn't taking seriously, a lot of things that I was in control of that I wasn't doing a good job of. And I just remember sitting there and praying with intention for the first time in my life. Now, because I was always raised, to, you, you, you go to bed every night and you pray to God. Yeah. But I never prayed as if anybody was listening. I just prayed because that was what I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And then for, that was the first time in my entire life I'd prayed as if somebody was on the other end of the phone there. And uh, I just remember saying, man, if you can, if you can fix this <laughs> messed up situation, then I'll give you credit for it for the rest of my life. And I'll, 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 I'll follow you instead of trying to follow me. Hmm. And that was it. That was the day that things changed. Come on, man. Wow. What a powerful story, man. Oh, dude. And how's your mom doing today? She's all right, man. It's uh, I mean, it's day by day and yeah. she, she hasn't gotten worse though. And which is a, Good. which is a blessing, you know, she's, Good. uh, she takes it day by day and she's gotten accustomed to the new normal, but uh, no, it, it's crazy actually how <laughs> I haven't thought about this until you just asked that question. We used to be in and out of the hospital like every other you know month, like every mm -hmm. quarter of the year, it was like there was a hospital visit for something. And uh, you know, from the ages of eight, nine years old up until, you know, my college years. And it hasn't been that way for, you know, three or four years. So it's, that's been oh, a blessing. That's awesome, man. Brandon, you're an absolute world changer, man. I so appreciate you taking time out of your day and, and sharing your story and your journey, man. And I'm excited to see what God's got in, in, in plan for you for 2023, man. And, and you are impacting a ton of people's lives, man. And, and so thank you for your time, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity, for the platform. Keep doing what you're doing because people need to hear this stuff. Thank you so much for checking out the show today. I really appreciate it. I hope that my guest was able to bring you some amazing wisdom and knowledge to help you continue to fight for your goals, your dreams, and your purpose. If you could do me one big favor and just hit that subscribe button, I would so appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Keep changing the world. I believe in you. Have an amazing day.